Well, here's a question for you. Would you call yourself a disciple of Jesus? There are different ways we say that, Christian, right? The term Christian came long after disciple was, was the term of the day. Culturally, disciples followed their leader. But there's a big difference between a disciple and an admirer of Jesus. There's a big difference between the two. Are you a disciple or are you an admirer, a fan, a groupie? John Lennon, front man of the Beatles, do you know at one time he called himself a Christian? No joke. In between writing songs about imagining a world without heaven and hell and God and boundaries and borders and private property where everyone can be perfect and love each other and share everything, John Lennon at one time in his life, his friends said he, he got into a, a phase, I think he went through a lot of phases, but he got into a phase where uh, he was addicted to television and he got watching television evangelists. And eventually, uh, one journalist actually said about him that one day Lennon had an epiphany. He allowed himself to be touched, touched by the love of Jesus Christ. And it drove him to tears of joy and ecstasy. Well, that sounds nice. He drew a picture of a crucifix. He was born again, and the experience was such a kick that he had to share it with Yoko. And it lasted about two weeks before his friends talked him out of it. So the question is, are you a disciple? Because disciples don't last for two weeks. They're lifelong. They don't fall away when the ride gets bumpy. Well, the first thing we got to do, I'm going to tell you exactly what we're going to do this morning, as long as you promise you're not going to go to sleep on me. All right? You promise? We're going to define what a true disciple is. And then we are going to look at three trademarks of how that disciple responds to Jesus Christ. All right? Very simple. Let's define it first. So we're, we're jumping in in Matthew chapter 7. I have to set it up. I have to give you a little bit of context. Jesus is preaching what we know as the famous Sermon on a Mount. Very technical term for the fact that Jesus was preaching a Sermon on the Mountain with his disciples around him, and the crowd obviously was growing. He was growing in fame. He had been healing a lot of people. And this sermon, I can't express to you because we're not living in that culture, but I cannot express to you this morning just how countercultural this sermon was to the, the culture around Jesus, to the culture that he was speaking into. It was a completely opposite message to what the culture influencers and setters of that day were saying and teaching the people. It was upside down. He started it by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And from that point on, he just follows through and he is giving a sermon and setting up a complete definition of what it looks like to follow Jesus and to be his disciple. We're coming in in chapter 7. It started in chapter 5. We're entering it in chapter 7. And in chapter 7, he's going to kind of flip a switch a little bit, and he's going to start winding down, and he's calling people to respond. And that's the first thing I want you to recognize about discipleship is that it is a response. But to who? To who? Well, Jesus does something, and, and if you look at verse 28, we're going to go right to the end of chapter 7, verse 28. Matthew, the writer, who was most likely a witness of this, he's looking around at the crowd, and he's recording what he saw. When Jesus finished these sayings, 
or his sermon, the crowd, the crowds, there's a vast audience now. It had been growing as he's preaching. The crowds were astonished at his teaching, astonished. Like they're sitting there, mouths open, don't know what to say, don't know how to react. They're astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes or the culture setters of the day. Authority, that's a big word. That's a big word. And all through this sermon, Jesus sets himself up, not as someone who just knows his material, all right? Someone can speak and look like they have authority over their material. Jesus sets himself up as having authority over the entire universe, the entire world. It's not long into the sermon before he's saying, blessed are you when you are persecuted for my sake, on my behalf. <laughs> well, that's kind of bold. And he continually defines for them what the kingdom of God looks like. And it's all through the sermon. He says, I didn't come to destroy the law. I've come to fulfill it. I've come to accomplish the law and the prophets. Everything in the Old Testament. That's why I'm here. He sets himself up as the ultimate authority. So here it is. Here's point number two about discipleship. Discipleship is a response to Jesus as Lord and King. But Lord of King and King of what? Well, throughout the sermon, again, this is your homework. I'm giving you homework this morning. I hope you don't mind. I know it's early. But uh, your homework is to go back to Matthew 5 and read through the whole sermon. I want you to do that. Not now. Not now. Later. Okay? But I'm just telling you now. You can back it up later. I want you to go home and read and prove that these things are so that I'm telling you. But all through the sermon, he touches on every aspect of life every aspect of life. He's just moving through our thought life, our desires, our actions, our relationships, our prayer life, our inner spiritual life, our generosity, our financial issues, our deep-seated personal issues like anger and lust and anxiety. It's all there. And as individuals change, so does the culture. And Jesus is pointing and touching on every aspect of life. He even sets the standard of righteous living at absolute perfection. He's not making excuses like the scribes and the Pharisees of that time period who were saying, yes, this is good, but if you do it this way, it's okay. So you're not supposed to divorce your wife, but there are some clauses that will allow you to divorce your wife. Jesus turns that all upside down and he says to them, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds is higher than that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And right there, at that moment, you and I should be reacting the very same way and saying, I'm not capable of that. No one is. Well, the New Testament, this, the story of the New Testament unfolds. This is the beginning. Jesus eventually goes, dies, rises again. And in his death and resurrection, he accomplishes the righteousness we could not accomplish for ourselves. He gives us that righteousness. And the moment we repent and we put our trust in Jesus Christ, God declares us, God, the final judge, declares us to be right, righteous, justified, case dismissed. And now we live according to the commands of Christ, not to please God so much as to show the world just how beautiful he is and that we find him more beautiful and more valuable than anything else. It's a new motive for doing good works. 
But listen, here is the full definition of discipleship. Discipleship is a response to Jesus as Lord over every aspect of life. Is that clear? I hope it's clear. And I hope you don't forget it. Let me say it again. Discipleship is a response to Jesus as Lord over every aspect of life, public and private, secular and sacred. We don't get to put our life into compartments, into boxes, and decide which part Jesus gets and which part we get. Our leisure time, our work time, he's Lord over it all. C.S. Lewis did not give us any options. He did not give us the option to be able to simply admire Jesus as a moral teacher. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left us that, that open to us he did not intend to. Folks, I hope it's clear by now that the standard of righteousness is far higher than you and I. Which of us have not had lustful thoughts? Which of us have not been jealous? Which of us have not hated our enemy? Which of us have not, at some point in our life, wanted to save face like a hypocrite? Jesus touches on all of these areas of our lives and exposes our total inability to be Lord over our own lives. You can try and you'll ruin it. Maybe you've lived long enough to realize that that was always, already, has already been the case. Facing this means facing the hard fact that I need someone to save myself. Disciples are not holier than thou, by the way. That's the, that's the secret behind this. A lot of people think that when you're a Christian, you're holier than thou. You just look down at the world. No, no, true Christians who've come to the foot of the cross and realize that I'm so messed up that the creator of the universe had to come and die for me are not holier-than-thou people. They're people who realized they were lost, Jesus found them, and they owe everything to him. Also, don't be mistaken. Jesus is not someone begging to come into your heart today. You say, I've got a verse for that. No, you don't. The verse you've got that you think you have is a verse of Jesus knocking at the door of a church. In Revelation and he's asking the church, do you have any room for me? Because if you don't, I'm going to shut you down. We're not talking about some effeminate individual standing at a door and just, please let me in, please let me in. No, he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and he demands your full surrender. Hope that's clear. That's who he is. He's demanding that you bow to him. That requires conviction that requires repentance, realizing that your way has been the wrong way. And that leads to three trademarks, three realities that will be true of this response, this discipleship response. You know, as a disciple, I need to be reminded of this because there are times in my life where I start to take control again. I just start taking over again. 
not allowed to do that. So I'm reminding myself this morning, and I hope it's a reminder for true disciples, there might be some here and you're confused about being a disciple. You think you're a disciple, but maybe you're an admirer or a fan and you've never really come to grips and come to terms with just how lost you are and how much of a savior you need. Maybe there are some that here this morning, you've never even heard the good news of Jesus Christ before, and this is all new to you. These three trademarks will be helpful for all of us. Here's number one. A disciple's response will be marked by seeking Jesus as the way that is unpopular and hard. Now, that's a long heading. I get it. It's a lot of words. Just remember, Jesus is the way, okay? We will be marked by seeking Jesus as the way, and that way is unpopular and hard. Okay, let's get back into the text. Verse 13. Matthew 7, 13. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. That gate, that way, is popular. Verse 14. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So he's winding down his sermon and he's turning to these people and he's saying, okay, here's what I want you to do. Here's how I want you to respond. I want you to enter by a narrow gate. It's an unpopular way. It's not like, uh, it's not not, uh, going to be something that's going to gain you a lot of friends. It's not going to gain you public favor. You know, roads in the ancient world were not like roads today that were nicely paved. You know, we complain about roads when they have a few potholes on them. But back then, roads were very, very treacherous and dangerous, but they were very necessary. The language of walking in ways was very common to Jewish people. Uh, you, You never knew what was around the corner on a road in the ancient world. You didn't know if there would be some renegade soldiers wanting something from you. You didn't know if there would be tax collectors wanting to get you to give them a bribe. You didn't know if there'd be bandits. You didn't know if there'd be wild animals. You didn't know. So taking broadways, safe ways with lots of people was a lot safer than taking a narrow way, which you could just kind of fit on the path yourself and you weren't quite sure what was around the next bush or up the mountainside. You just didn't know. But this language was figurative language. All through the Old Testament, you see this. The Jewish people were very accustomed to this illustration because it described the direction of their lives. Psalm 128.1, the psalmist says, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. Well, that's good. And then there were warnings on the other side, like Proverbs 4.14, Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of the evil, the way of the evil. But it was commonly assumed in Jewish culture that the popular way was the safe way, that the popular way was the good way. In fact, in their figurative world, they believed that Jewish culture was generally holy and good and on God's side and that 
the nation as a whole would be saved and there might be a few bad apples that face judgment. But other than that, if you're running the course with the scribes and the Pharisees and with the moral setters of the day, you're in good shape. And Jesus turns it right upside down and says, no, no, it's the few, not the many. It's the ones who come through me, not through the world's messages. That way is the right way. It's unpopular. He sets it up. Wide gate versus narrow gate. What is it about a narrow gate? It's hard to find. He says, few there be. There, there, there are going to be few that find it. How do you find it? You have to seek it. You have to enter through it. The true gospel of Jesus Christ is easily misunderstood and easily replaced with a counterfeit, with messages that only teach positives and never teach negatives, only teach about goodness and never about sin and transgression. Jesus' sermon wasn't easy to receive. He set the standard infinitely high for them. And to embrace it would require acknowledging some hard realities about yourself. You're lost. You're desperate. Nothing you can do to save yourself. And to enter it, one must first seek it out. Based on that desperation. You don't enter with your buddies. You don't enter with a crowd. You don't enter with your family. It cost you something. It may cost you everything. It may cost you relationships. It may cost you friendships. It may cost you family, career, cultural comfort, popularity, and even your life. Not only is the way unpopular, but it's difficult. It's narrow. People look at it and say it's restrictive. You're putting boundaries on morality. How dare you? It's unpopular. Hard, easy to misunderstand. Oh, the, the broad way that leads to destruction is easy. Just go with the flow. Just go with what you're hearing everywhere and anywhere. Seek comfort now. Get your best life now. That's what the broad way says. The broad way says love is love which is just a very obscure way of saying it could be anything you want. And whatever you do, don't hate anyone. It's hard. It's hard. And by the way, we shouldn't hate anyone, but they've redefined hate. We're going to get that to that in a few minutes. But for now, we just need to see that hashtags like love is love, love who you want, they widen any boundary on morality. We see that right away. It's hard to stand against cultural messaging. It's hard to give love a, a definition that has boundaries and to t tell people what you believe is going to ruin your life. It's hard to commit to loving one person in a covenant relationship of marriage for life through the best and worst of times. It's hard to raise intentionally raise and train children to fear the Lord and to confront their culture. It's hard to focus on the needs of others rather than our own selfish interests. It's hard to bow to unpopular and yet absolute truth. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was executed by the Germans, the, the Nazis during World War II, just at the very tail end, 
for having stood up against his culture in the name of Christ, at one time said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. I've been dying to sell for 33 years, and I can testify today that every day there are new areas of selfishness that float to the surface or old areas of selfishness that resurface again that require a constant death to self and a constant repentance and running back to Christ. And Jesus said, if anyone, Mark chapter 8, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. By the way, a cross is a death instrument. It wasn't pretty. It wasn't just the crucifix that you have around your neck or that you see in symbolic form for Christianity. It was a death instrument. That's what it was. Jesus said, take that up and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it for, listen to this rhetorical question. Please listen to this. Please think about this. Think about it over and over again. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What's it gain you to be on the broad, comfortable road with the whole world clapping your name when you ultimately lose your soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. But listen, one last thing about this one before we go on. This way leads to life. The hard way leads to life. So don't think this morning that just because it's difficult that it's joyless. <laughs> it's absolutely joy-filled. I can testify to that. I can tell you something, following Christ for 33 years has been anything but boring. Anything but boring. Never know where he's taking us, but I can trust him. I can trust him. And many disciples in this room can say the same thing. You've trusted him and you can say today, he's faithful. He's faithful and he's leading you home. You're part of his kingdom. He's risen from the dead. You don't have to fear death anymore. You're going somewhere beyond what this world could ever offer you. Life. And it's not just life in the later on, but it's life right now. Jesus said, here is eternal life, that they might know you, the one true God. It's a relationship with God. You get to walk with him. The infinite, the one who is beautiful and holy and majestic. And you keep asking him questions and you keep seeking out who he is and you just never quite get to the end of it. He's just infinitely majestic. Life. This way leads to life. That's where Jesus wants to take us and he's faithful in doing it. Well, let's move on. Number two, the second trademark of a true disciple is recognizing Jesus as the truth that transforms and rewards. You know, as we're walking this hard way, a lot of messages come our way, don't they? Okay, we're walking along the road, we're following Christ, and every day someone says, could be a family member, could be a friend, could be the television. There's messaging on Netflix, there's messaging in music, there's messaging everywhere. Lots of preachers, lots of false gospels, they're everywhere. Messages are everywhere. And they're all telling us something. They're all feeding into our minds. Some of it's very subtle. Hollywood doesn't need facts. It has narrative. 
doesn't need facts, just tell you a story. And you go, oh, that's such a heartwarming story, it must be true. Or, oh, that's such a heartwarming story. And we, the virtues, the virtues that Hollywood wants to feed us, they feed us through narrative, and we just believe it. And we get to the end of a movie or something like that, and we don't even think about what the message was in the movie. But subtly, little by little, it is feeding into what we believe about the world around us. It is. It's everywhere. So what are we supposed to do? Well, Jesus has something to say about this. He has three warnings for us, starting in verse 15. Let's read verse 15 together. Beware of false prophets. By the way, he's not just comparing, if you look at the context, he's not just comparing to true prophets, he's comparing to himself. That's why in the end, he's setting it up. He's calling people to follow him, not some other preacher, not just the law and the prophets of the Old Testament. He's calling people to follow him. He's saying, I'm here to accomplish all of that. That's what I'm here for. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. That's warning number one. The smoothest talker may be the best liar. Please remember that. Just because you're a good talker doesn't mean what you're saying is true. How do we know what's true? Jesus is very clearly setting himself up against this, saying, instead of the false prophets, instead of the false messaging, make sure you run everything through me. He's the source of all that's true. Doesn't mean he's given us quantitatively. He hasn't given us, (coughs) excuse me, he hasn't given us all information. He hasn't told us everything there is about biology and physics and everything else. But what he is, is the ultimate authority to all of those things. He's Lord over it all. Second warning, not only be careful who you trust, contrasting contemporary voices to his own, but the second warning, verse 16, you will recognize them, the false prophets, by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. It's impossible. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Warning number two, external appearances and first impressions do not always tell the truth. Samuel had this big lesson happen to him in 1 Samuel, I think it was 17, when he went to anoint the new king of Israel and he didn't know who it was, he just knew it was one of Jesse's sons. And they started walking into the room and he saw these big Superman hero dudes walk into the room and he's like, this has got to be the guy. And God gave him a clear, clear warning and said, be careful of what you see on the outside. Man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. And the only way we can see the heart of an individual is to see the fruit in their life. And that takes time. That's why, you know, it's never a good idea to follow pastors you've never met, you've never known. You can follow a pastor on YouTube. You don't know how he runs his family. You don't know how he behaves in his life. You're not close enough to him. You don't even know how he runs his church. 
You don't know how he deals with people that are under him, how he leads others, how Christ-like he might be. You don't know. But we live in a world where we follow God, the best talker in the room. We'll follow the next snippet of video that makes sense to us or that somehow connects with us. And we think to ourselves, this guy's got it. Well, he might, or he might just be branding his product. Jesus says, be real careful about external appearances and what's coming out of the mouth. Wait and see the fruit. Watch how he treats his wife. Watch how he leads his children. Inspect his life. See the fruit before you ever obey what he's doing. By the way, Jesus did that for for three years. He was in public ministry and he proved to everyone around him. They looked at him and they said, no one's ever spoken like this man. No one has ever done the things he's done. He's perfect. He's sinless. And he proved himself to be so before he went to the cross and died for us and then rose again from the dead. Be careful about external appearances. And thirdly, third warning, cultural and contemporary viewpoints will never replace Jesus' final word. Listen to this, verse 21. Not everyone who says, I want you to think about that for a minute, okay? So he is lining up. This is what these people in the culture are saying, okay? Present life. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So not everyone who says they're a disciple. Not everyone who says they're a Christian. Not everyone who says they're a pastor. Not everyone who says they're a Christian teacher. Who calls me Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. The fact that they're repeating it is emphasizing it. No, I really am. I really am. He really is my Lord. I really am a disciple. He's emphasizing it. Repeated words in the ancient world meant emphasis. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say, there it is again. Here they are. They're still talking. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Now listen to this, because he doesn't say, then I will say, just like they were saying. He uses a different word. Hamalageo is the word that he uses. I will declare total authority. Okay, can you see how in this sermon, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Cultural and contemporary viewpoints that sound so loud today, whether it's on CNN or CTV, it doesn't matter what media organization it is. It doesn't matter. They're all saying things, but Jesus will ultimately declare. He has the final word. You know, I've noticed a shift in the last couple of years that has kind of surprised me, but it shouldn't. And I started looking back into history and realizing, no, this is the way it used to be. Because our culture was so based on Christian principles for so long, like I remember going to school and repeating the Lord's Prayer. I remember that. Public school. And many of you do too. But because it was like that for so long, it used to be that Christians, true Christians, were persecuted for being too good. Persecuted for, oh, you won't do that? Oh, you're one of those, right? And people would kind of look down their nose at you for being too good. 
They would treat you like you're a moral snob, right? You're just above us. That's it. It shifted. Now Christians are being persecuted by a world that has taken the moral high ground and believes that Christians are the evil ones. The good guys and the bad guys have switched places. Now they're telling us, love your neighbor. I find that interesting. You don't, do you read the Bible? Do you even know what it says? Do you even know the context behind any of that? Or are you just slinging words at me that I love and you hate? Love your neighbor and be nice. I mean, these are, these are just being preached over and over again from a moral high ground. They redefine terms such as love and hate and tolerance and choice. They used to have real meanings. Now they don't have any meaning at all. Signs in the yards that say hate has no home here. Well, that's wonderful. Hate has no home in my house either. But the word hate in my house means something very different. Redefined hate. To stand against, to be uh, defined as anything that stands against the delusions of a society that has turned away from its creator. Folks, it's sad. Biology now is looked at as hateful for deciding gender. I'm not sure, but I think maybe it's going to become gravity as hateful for making sure that we aren't allowed to fly if we jump off high rises. And yet the most loving thing that we can do as disciples of Jesus is tell people the truth. It's not the first time in history this phenomenon has happened. In fact, in the early church, the early church elder Polycarp was in the arena. The Roman government had told him before he was to be killed to repent and to cry out, Away with the atheist. Now that sounds like moral high ground to me. Polycarp sounds like a really bad guy who needs to repent. Obviously likes those atheists. But the Romans had redefined atheism to mean anyone that didn't worship Caesar as Lord. And in response, Polycarp turned to the audience of Caesar worshipers. And he said, away with the atheists. And they killed him. The German philosopher, atheist philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, at the turn of the 20th century, who had announced the death of God, not the real God, but the philosophical God that they believed Christians just had made up, This is what he said about the Christian church. He said, the Christian church has left nothing untouched by its depravity. It has turned, the Christian church has turned every value into worthlessness and every truth into a lie and every integrity into the baseness of soul. Notice the way Nietzsche set himself up on a moral high ground. He's the one with integrity. He's the one with virtue. It's the Christian church that lacks virtue. It's the Christian church that lacks Integrity, and yet, ironically, Nietzsche was the one who spent the last decade of his life completely out of his mind. And so Paul speaks into his culture and speaks into ours and says to true disciples, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How do we do this? 
by recognizing Jesus Christ is the absolute authority to all truth. Nothing else. His lordship covers science. His lordship covers history. His lordship covers society, arts, technology, government, all, all of it. And as disciples go out into the world and his lordship covers every aspect of their life, culture is indirectly changed and transformed. Well, here's the last one. A disciple's response, trademark number three, will be marked by building on Jesus as the wisdom that sustains and endures. Verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. What happened? The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Thank you for coming. You are loved. Right? That's how he ended his sermon. You imagine? Not exactly seeker friendly. Great was the fall of it. I want you to notice what's happening here. There's a bit of a progression going on throughout this whole thing. Okay, Jesus is the way. A disciple is called to follow Jesus. They see Jesus as the way. They turn and they follow. As they follow along the way, a lot of truth claims are coming at them, coming at them, coming at them. But Jesus is the truth. I'm following Jesus. He's the way. He's the truth. And now, as time progresses... And people build on his words, build on his authority. They build on what he's saying. They're building on a firm foundation. And the storms will come. Folks, a storm may be coming. We don't know. The storms will come. We live in a broken world. We live in a world that is in rebellion against their creator. The storms are going to come. It could be a disease. It could be tyranny. It could be immorality. It could be totalitarianism. The storms are going to come. But as we move on the way, trusting Christ and building, not just learning his words, but Jesus says, you hear them, you do them. This is the definition of wisdom. Wisdom and knowledge are two different things. Knowledge means I know a lot of stuff. But wisdom means I know what to do because of that stuff. That's what wisdom means. It is putting knowledge to action. And as we move along the way and we build, we do what Jesus commands us. We follow him. We bow to him. We surrender to him. As we do that and we build on the solid foundation, we are like the man in Psalm 1 who the psalmist says, walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law, he meditate, meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that, he, in all that he does, he prospers. But the wicked, 
They're not so. They're like the chaff, that stuff that the farmer throws up into the air when he wants to get the grain to fall back into his net. He throws the heavy grain up into the air and the chaff just is driven away in the wind. That's what the wicked are like, those who choose not to follow Jesus. The storms are coming. Don't spend your energy. Don't spend your energy trying to avoid the storms. So many people are living in fear, living in terror. Follow Christ. It's the safest place you could be. Do what he tells you. Learn from his commands. Bow to his authority. Follow him. Don't try to avoid the storms. They're going to come. But if you're on a foundation, you're not moving. If you're not on the foundation, you're not staying. And Jesus said clearly, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you're an admirer of Jesus, you may like his comfort. You may like his influence. You may like his speaking style. I'm not sure how you could if you really hear what he's saying. But you don't want his rebuke or his correction. You're not surrendered to him as Lord of your entire life. Many Christians want to live compartmentalized lives, sacred on Sunday, Sunday morning usually, only, and secular the rest of the week. Please listen to this. He's either king of it all, or he's not king at all. Which is it? Which way are you going to go? Direction of the culture or the direction of Christ? Which truth are you going to found your life on? The messages of the God-hating world or the truth of Christ? Are you surrendered? All of your strategies. What are you going to do with your best laid plans? Are you going to surrender them to Christ? Are you going to try your best to avoid the pain, avoid the storms? People acting out of fear are not necessarily acting wisely, but Jesus is a firm foundation who is always faithful to guide through every storm.